So Lord's Day 16, loved ones, questions and answers 40 to 44. Why did Christ have to suffer death? Because God's justice and truth require it. Nothing else could pay for our sins except the death of the Son of God. Why was he buried? His burial testifies that he really died. Since Christ has died for us, why do we still have to die? Our death is not a payment for our sins, but only a dying to sins and an entering into eternal life. What further benefit do we receive from Christ's sacrifice and death on the cross? By his power, our old man is crucified, put to death, and buried with him, so that the evil desires of the flesh may no longer rule us, but that instead we may offer ourselves as a sacrifice of thanksgiving to him. Why does the creed add, he descended into hell? To assure me during attacks of deepest dread and temptation that Christ my Lord, by suffering unspeakable anguish, pain, and terror of soul, on the cross, but also earlier, has delivered me from hellish anguish and torment. And now Romans chapter 6, verse 1 to 14. The Apostle Paul says, What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life. And offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. For, for sin shall no longer be your master, because you are not under the law, but under grace. And then Galatians 2.20, where Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So for the reading of God's word, let's pray and ask for his blessing on it. Father, we thank you again for your word that we've considered tonight, that we've heard. Lord, as 
We've heard it. We do ask that the Spirit would now take it and impress it upon our hearts and help us understand it more deeply and that it would take root therein and produce the fruit of righteousness that we just heard should be the proper results of our union with Christ. Lord, we, we ask that you would work faith into each and every one of us, a bit more faith tonight as we consider what you have done for us and continue doing for us through Christ and through the Spirit. This we ask, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, before I believed in Jesus in my youngest years, and for many years after I believed in Jesus, I didn't really understand or know how important the the whole gospel is, the entirety of the good news. So I knew that the basic gospel, right, is that Jesus died for my sins. I knew that he died to free me from my sins, my guilt, and also that he rose again from the dead to declare me righteous. So I understood what is called the legal aspects of the good news, the gospel. Legal in the sense of debts, right? Debts are paid off. My sins have been forgiven. Uh, That record of debt has been canceled. And in the courtroom of God, by faith alone in Jesus, he has declared me righteous by faith in him. So I understood those legal aspects of the gospel, but it has taken me a lot longer to realize that the Bible says more about the benefits that we receive, the good things that we receive from what Jesus has done for us, the good benefits of his death and resurrection. And they're not simply abstract or legal benefits, but they are rather personal and even mystical benefits that enter into our own hearts and have effect therein. And in the question and answer 43 of the Heidelberg Catechism that we read tonight, it addresses particularly those additional mystical benefits that we receive from Christ's sacrifice and his death on the cross. I want to read that again for us. It says, what further benefit do we receive from Christ's sacrifice and death on the cross? So what further, in addition to forgiveness of sins and our justification, right? In addition, by his power, our old man, our old self, is crucified, put to death, and buried with him, so that the evil desires of the flesh may no longer rule us, but that instead we may offer ourselves as a sacrifice of thanksgiving to him. And so, in that, In other words, Christ's suffering and death did not only win my case in the courtroom of God as my judge, no, in a legal sense, not only that, but Christ won for me and for every believer the power over sin and newness of life, these mystical benefits that we now receive personally in our lives that begin to change and transform us from the inside out. So how can this be? Well, It is because the Son of God came into this world representing his own people. The Father gave him a people before the foundation of the world, and he came in for their sake as their mediator to represent them, to be their head, and the church is his body, right? And so even while he lived, he carried us in his heart, as it were. And it was by way of covenant, by way of covenant, that God formed this mystical union between Christ and his bride, the church, similar to a husband and a wife who join in marriage, that covenant 
of marriage, and what happens? They become, two become one flesh, and they share all things in common, right? So too, we who belong to Jesus by faith, we become one with him, and we share in all of his benefits, not just legal benefits, but also that, that power of his life and resurrection, etc., which is what the catechism is talking about here. Now, the Apostle Paul, he talks about this concept of union with Christ all the time in, in the New Testament, in his writings. It's perhaps one of his favorite phrases, in Christ or in him. The phrase in him or in Christ appears 180 times in the New Testament, and 143 of those times comes from the Apostle Paul himself. The great Dutch theologian, Herman Bovink, he talks about the importance of this idea, saying this, There is no participation in the benefits of Christ other than by communion with his person. If you want to receive benefits from, from Christ, you need to have communion with him, his person. And then he goes on to say, Indeed, if it is true that the very first benefit of grace already, it is true that the very first benefit of grace already presupposes communion with the person of Christ. So in other words, what he's saying is that every legal and mystical benefit that we receive from God, it originates there in our union with Christ. Um, so is true faith a benefit that we receive from God's grace? Is it a gracious favor that he bestows upon us, faith? Yes, it is. As Paul says in Ephesians 2.8, salvation by faith is a gift of God. He gives it to us as a gift. He plants it within our hearts. And so what Bob Inc. is saying there is that even that very first moment that you believed in Jesus is evidence that you were already in communion with the person of Christ. Now, this idea of union with Christ is what we find here in Romans 6 as well, our baptism. Our baptism speaks of our union with Christ and our sharing in all of his benefits. In particular, Paul is saying we have a participation in the power of his suffering and death that reaches us personally in order to decrease and diminish the influence of sin in our hearts and in our lives. The Spirit comes and sets us free from sin's tyranny. And at the heart of this passage, we find in Romans 6 there, verse 6 to 7, the central claims that Paul makes, where he says this of believers, For we know that our old self was crucified with him, that is with Christ, so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Now, what is he talking about here? Uh, well, in that very moment of faith in Jesus, when you believed in Jesus for the first time, uh, when we truly give ourselves over to him, the Holy Spirit ends the absolute reign of sin over us. So prior to that moment, what, what was implied here in the New Testament and what the Apostle Paul is saying is that anyone who does not have the Spirit of God at work within them, giving them that true faith, that they are under the tyranny of sin and the devil, even if they're not aware of it. But the Spirit of God comes to a believer and gives that faith to them, 
and releases them from that tyranny, setting them free. How? Paul says, by applying into our hearts the power of Jesus' death and his resurrection so that we can now freely live for the righteousness of God. So if you're a a believer, if you belong to Jesus by faith, you are no longer a slave to sin. It is no longer your master. You are no longer bound to do sinful or sin's bidding because you have a new principle of life at work within you that the Spirit has put therein. The newness of life worked in by the Spirit of God. And here in Romans 6, Paul shows us that faith in Jesus results in death to sin and newness of life in God. It results in a new identity and a, a new allegiance of our heart, no longer allied just to myself and my own personal desires and preferences or to whatever idol I may be pursuing, but now my heart is allied in allegiance to God above all else which is visibly symbolized, Paul says, by our water baptism into Jesus' death and resurrection. How does it picture that? Well, just as Jesus went through death and rose from the tomb in resurrection life, so too, in the waters of our baptism, we went through Christ's death, so to speak, and rose to newness of life through the power of his resurrection. Because of our mystical union with Christ, we have communion now with all of his benefits, like in that marriage, right? We are the church, his bride, and he is our bridegroom. And now we share in all of his, all of his blessings, his benefits, and in particular, the benefits of his death and resurrection to put to death our old selfishness, our old ego, and replace it with a newness of life, a more humble disposition. And this concept, I know it's really hard to understand it's a bit confusing and it, it, it's hard. It feels like it's going over the top of our heads. So I did come up with uh, an illustration that I think is helpful to understand what this is talking about. Um, Benjamin Franklin and the cockpit. If you've ever heard of this story, it's fascinating. So on January 29th, uh, 1774, so just before, uh, the, well, just before the American Revolution, Benjamin Franklin was called to appear before the Privy Council there in England, a select group of advisors to the King of England. And the room that he was called into was known as the cockpit. So the British at this point were getting very upset at the American colonies for the rebellion against the king and the taxation, etc. And Franklin was the appointed diplomat for the colonies. And he was their representative. And Franklin was still trying at this time to make peace and strive for a diplomatic solution. He didn't want to see the colonies separate from England. He was still a loyalist. Now, we think often of the war um, at that time for independence as a simple revolution against tyranny. But in reality, it was a civil war within the British Empire that resulted in the formation of a new nation, right? So in this cockpit room, there he is, and he's sort of on trial, and he's spur- and, uh, spurred on by the cheers of the audience in the cockpit, uh, his sort of prosecutor, the Solicitor General Alexander Wedderburn, unleashed on him a tirade of accusations and insults in front of a filled room, and Franklin just remained quiet. There was nothing really he could do to try and defend himself. 
But what is remarkable and fitting to what we're considering tonight is that Franklin, that occasion, he entered into the cockpit, that room, as a loyal Briton, a loyalist of the crown of England. But he left that room as an American revolutionary. It totally changed him. The Making of a Patriot, a book, uh, in that book, renowned Franklin historian Sheila Skemp demonstrates how Franklin's ultimate decision to support the colonies was not previously decided before that event. In fact, up until the cockpit ordeal, he was steadfastly committed to achieving, quote, an accommodation of our differences. So what do we see? We see that Benjamin Franklin went into that cockpit as a Briton and he left an American. What happened to him in there? Well, his loyalty, his identity, and his desires changed in that very moment, in that event inside that room. He realized as he left that he had no future in England. He no longer wanted to serve his former master, the British monarchy. Instead, what he left with was a fire in his bosom, the burning desire to see the colonies freed from tyranny. And he was, by and large, a changed man after that event. So I think this is a very fitting illustration for what we're talking about tonight. Because, in a sense, when we came into the cockpit room of the Spirit, the space where we heard and believed the gospel, we were changed by God, right? The Spirit came with the Word of God and the sword of the Spirit slayed our old self, our pride, our arrogance, etc., And Jesus' death power was applied to us so that that old self now is dying within us more and more. As Paul says, our old self was crucified with Jesus. What is the resulting consequence? Well, now your old self that was once loyal to sin and the devil is dead. You're no longer a slave to sin, the spirit took the power of Jesus' crucifixion and nailed your old self to the crossbeams of judgment, so to speak, to put it to death. And like Franklin, thinking about his future in England, well, you realize now that sin and the devil offers you no real future. Like Franklin, thinking of his future, he wanted to ascend in the hierarchy of England, but he realized there was no hope for him to do that. And so... When we leave after hearing the gospel, we realize that sin, the flesh, and the devil, there's no future for us here. It would be foolish, therefore, to try and serve master sin any longer. So where you once only cared about fulfilling your personal desires, which is where we all once were, now in the heart of every true believer is a new burning desire to serve God instead of sin. In Christ, you have a new identity and your heart is now allied to a new master, King Jesus. So now you seek to honor him and you long for the freedom of all people from the tyranny of sin and death. So Benjamin Franklin's cockpit transformation is a fitting illustration there. But at the same time, his transformation is explainable by geopolitics, right? Circumstances. But by comparison, We have to realize that what Paul is talking about here is this gospel transformation is only explainable by God's power operating within us. 
Paul's saying the spirit comes and kills that old principle of proud defiance that used to dwell and reign within us, setting us free from its ruling power. Our hearts used to be kind of like a computer. It was filled with all kinds of viruses. It didn't work properly anymore. And the spirit comes in with kind of an antivirus software, the death of Christ attacking the virus of sin. And in its place, the spirit installs in our hearts a pure software, the new principle of life, the power of Christ's resurrection. Which is why Paul says in Galatians 2.20, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So Christ's resurrection life surges through our bodies, so to speak. He's enabling us now to live for God. The result is not a mere change of opinion or perspective. It is a supernatural change that occurs in the soul or in the heart of a believer. It is a miracle of new creation at work, already beginning, which is why in 2 Corinthians 5, 14 to 17, Paul says, For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all. That is, Jesus has died for all. Therefore, all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So whereas before, in the, in the, under the tyranny of our flesh and sin, we only live for ourselves. But now the Spirit sets us free to live for God. And we are part of that new creation work that Jesus has started, inaugurated by dying and rising again from the dead. This new creation is not only something that we are waiting for in the future. It is. The consummation of it, the fullness of it is still to come. yes but it is already something that we can receive and reap the benefits of even now in our lives. And that's why it's helpful and practical in our daily lives. So remember back to the illustration with Benjamin Franklin, we think often of the forming of the United States as a revolution, right? But it was also a civil war. It was a civil war. And so, so too, our reforming, our re- reformation in the image of God is a kind of civil war and a spiritual revolution. How so? Well, our old self is no longer in control of us, but its influence still is residually present within us. It still has a fighting kick to it within us. The Spirit of Christ, yes, is now within us, and it is at war. The Spirit is at war with our old self. It is a kind of internal civil war that is ongoing in the Christian Paul talks about that in Galatians 5, where he says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. And so what Paul is saying is that the Spirit has entered in and has begun this sort of revolution, this spiritual war within us, that Jesus, Jesus has, in a sense, started a revolution against the tyranny of sin. And the Spirit of God is the main instigator of that revolution. But 
because we're all born in sin and we can't escape that reality, this revolution takes place in our hearts day by day. And it is essentially a kind of civil war within us, right? A war between the spirit of Christ and our sinful flesh. And the desires are competing against one another. And in this civil war, sometimes we might get discouraged, downcast, because our sinfulness still is fighting and kicking, and we sometimes obey those desires over the desires of the flesh. Sorry, over the desires of the spirit and the new principle of life that he has given us. But we already know the outcome of this civil war. By faith, we are on the side of the victor. We have to remember that. Jesus Christ, our new self, will see the ultimate victory over the tyranny of sin, just as surely as Christ saw the victory over sin and death by rising again from the dead. So practically, how, how do we make sense of this? How do, we, how do we live in this way? Well, we need to look back to our baptism, our baptism moment as our cockpit moment. So going back to that Franklin illustration, make use of your baptism in this way. Remember it. Remember how your old self died with Christ and how you have a new identity that has been raised up spiritually within you by the Spirit of God. And with that new identity, you have a new allegiance and new desires that the Spirit is infusing and putting within us. So we have freedom from sin's tyranny. As Paul says in our passage Count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. He's telling us we have to change our way of thinking about ourselves. Consider yourselves dead to sin and now alive to God in Christ Jesus. And then come out of that cockpit. Come out of your, the baptism waters, in a sense, again, ready to make war on the sin, sin, the flesh, and the devil. Jesus died not only to forgive us, loved ones, he died also to give us fighting power against our enemies. I'll say that again. He died not only to forgive us, not only those legal benefits, but also he died to give us fighting power against all our enemies. He suffered in order to liberate us. And again, Bavink has a helpful word here. He says, sanctification, it's a big word, which means the process of being made holy by God is as much a benefit of Christ as justification, which is to be declared righteous. Faith cannot stop at the forgiveness of sins, but reaches out to the perfection that is in Christ, sets to confirm itself by its own fruits, girds itself with courage and power, not only to live in communion with Christ, but also to fight under him as king against sin, the world, and the flesh, and to make all things serviceable, to the honor of God's name. In that sense, going forth with kind of that revolutionary vigor, seeking freedom, ultimate freedom from the tyranny of sin. Well, may we each day step out of our baptism renewed, reaffirmed by our new identity in Christ. Remember, you are in him, ready to fight the good fight of faith until the end, for we shall win. We shall win the victory because Christ has won already for us. And since we are his church, the bride, we receive all the benefits, all the benefits that belong to him because we are one with him. He has won for us and may we walk in the victory of Christ for sinners like us.
Amen. Let's close there. Lord, we thank you for this uh, consideration of what you have done for us uh, through the death and resurrection of Christ and how not only have you declared us forgiven and justified, but now by your spirit, you are applying into our hearts the power of Jesus' death, putting to death our old sinful flesh that, that, see, that sought to live life only for itself. And we confess again that still we find those desires within us, the desire to only please ourselves. But we do rejoice in the reality that you have in and we who believe in Jesus, you have given us new desires, a new allegiance to serve you above all else, not just serving ourselves, but to serve you, love you, and love our neighbor as ourselves. Lord, we ask that, that by your spirit, you would continue to put to death our old pride, our old self, and instead continue to work within us that newness of life by the spirit of God. And we trust that we will have the victory. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And so we, we trust and praise you for that victory in advance. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.